Brilliant. I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was ir uh, yeah, ironic that the session before was about grey hair. I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad I've got some. You know, some grey hair is good. So um, I was told not to be self-deprecating, so I've already blown that one out of the water already. Um, it's actually brilliant. I, I love this family. You know, I think we, we're creating a memory bump. I know we're a little older now, but we're creating a memory bump together. You know, you're finding, I'm sure you're finding friendships and relationships and depth as you cheer each other on, as you pray for each other, as you're in each other's situations. You know, I, I've, I, I've counted a privilege to be part of this. It's not the only thing. God's doing great stuff in lots of spheres and networks around the world. You know, it, it's not about advance. You know, we're not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. But it's fun to be family, eh? And I, and I love so many of you. I hope that I can serve you uh, well uh, today. Um, I want to talk about uh, dying to self. Sorry, I'll put that there, Sam. Uh, dying to self in a culture of self. Dying to self in a culture of self. Um, I don't know if you could uh, define what word would define the, the 21st century for you, um, but I, I, I think it's this word. So I'm just going to do it, because you know the really reality is, if you don't take a selfie, it's not really real, is it? So I'm just going to, I'm really bad at this, and I've got it on, I've got it on square. I, 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 okay, that's good. Okay, so I'll just take a selfie. Oh, the hand's got to be on the side, oh, and up, upside down. Okay, awesome, right. Okay, enough of that. But um, in 2013, selfie was the word of the year. In fact, it didn't exist, the word didn't exist until 2002 when a drunk Australian, I'm just looking at our Australian friend, uh, when, uh, uh, posted a picture on, online, and um, it was even before Facebook. Today, Apple and Google estimate that 180 million selfies are taken every day. Uh, a, a poll, one poll said uh, 18 to 24-year-olds, if, wave if you're 18 to 24. Oh, it's all the guys. Tom, you liar. <laughs> uh, reported every third photo is a selfie. This is a, a picture from our uh, series that I did on, um, on culture. And, and I said to Mark Tidridge, who does our, our, our graphics, I said, actually, it's just missing something. You know, it's got person and it's got Babylon. What's missing? It's missing a selfie. The Bible takes great selfies. Let me just tell you, prove it. James 1, 23 to 24 says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently in the, at his face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. That picture is actually me. I feel like I've still got it. I can still run for Jesus. I can still be powerful in this moment. And I think that, you know, that, that we don't want to be in this conference and just hear the word of God and then go out. I mean, I've been challenged like, am I going to foster kids? Am I going to look for elderly? Am I going to work with the addicts? I'm thinking, Lord, help me. <laughs> the Bible takes a great selfie. This is the Bible selfie. I felt as I prayed this, I should read this to you. It's not super encouraging, but this is my passage. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. But Paul writes this. Know this, Timothy. That in the last days there will be difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God. 
disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with self, and love pleasure rather than love God. They might act religious, but they'll reject the God that can make them godly. It's so much in us. We had a friend, we used to do Revive Together, Matt and I, and a friend called Paul Oakley who wrote a song called, It's All About You, Jesus. And I, and I saw this video, we're just going to watch a short video clip. I saw this video clip, and I thought, it's so profound. It's quite old, it's a little grainy. Sorry if you do, you're HD kind of people, but it was fairly cool in my day. So, <laughs> so watch this video, but I think it's so, so profound. I've got this kind of, I've got this kind of moment where I'm standing probably, I'm sure it's a dream, a bad dream, but I'm I'm standing next to Paul Oakley and I'm singing, it's all about me, really. And the thing is, it's true, we read 2 Timothy 3 and think, oh, that's those people out there, but it's actually me, lovers of ourselves, we, you know, love money. Who doesn't love money? You know, we're look boastful. Yeah, you know, we struggle with all those moments. We struggle with these things. You know, the secular culture is centered on self. It's absolutely all about self. So we're puffed up with pride. You know, uh, uh, Paul says, you know, that we, we're lovers of money. I mean, consumerism is everywhere. You know, we just love the fact we can just go online and click and next, the next day it just comes. We love that. No, it's just me that loves that then. Okay, you know, hedonism is a kind of pleasure-seeking. You know, you see the adverts on the TV and you think, oh, yes, if I only had that, if I only had that. You know, digital capitalism is designed to make you feel discontented. And, you know, and it does that in me. I think, oh, if I had that. And, and, and we love, we're so into that, lovers of pleasure. And Paul says, you know, that we friends are betrayed. You know, I mean, our community is so atomized, it breaks up, we, we struggle to make community. I thought Andrew spoke about it so wonderfully yesterday, do listen if you weren't here, just wonderfully how, how our community is, is, is atomized. I mean, identity politics, we're so, so fragile that, that people are slandered. If you don't agree with my opinion, 
You know, if you say something that's not culturally now or woke, man, you know, it it, it hits you that people are slandered. And and we scoff at God. We have a culture that scoffs at God. I don't know if you saw a few weeks ago, there was an employment tribunal. Uh, uh, you let's not go into the details of it, but, but basically it was a transgender case and the, and the person on the tri- tribunal was refusing to use the correct uh, 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 gender pronoun. Did, did anyone see this? Uh, and then what happened was the, 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 the tribunal said that it was against this person's human rights to believe in Genesis 1.27. Did anyone see that? I mean, it's staggering. Genesis 1, 27, uh, if you don't know, it says God created humanity in his image, male and female, he created them. It's the basis of human rights. You know, that uh, human rights has arisen in the West because of Christian culture. Read Tom Holland's book about, you know, the rise of, of the Western mind. You know, the, the, it's interesting that we kind of, we want that kind of sense of the value of the individual, but we don't want the God who values the individual. We don't want to say we bear his image, but it's that bearing his image that gives us value. Mark Sayers, who's been quoted a few times, it's a fairly well-thumbed book. I was given this book by the, my brother-in-law was a pastor, and I went, thanks, on the pile, you know you do. And then I heard a podcast called This Cultural Moment uh, with John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers talking about stuff like this, and I just thought, oh, I've got a book on this. It's really, really helpful. I think Mark Sayers is an Australian guy. It's a really prophetic insight into our culture. Uh, there's some geeky stuff in there, but there's some real profound insights, so I just wanted to, to tell you where my source is. Were. Mark says, says this, post-Christian culture attempts to retrain the solace of faith while gutting it of its costs, commitments and restraints that the gospel places on the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice, rightness and shalom, the peace of God's kingdom, while defending the unquestioned reign of the individual will. He says we want the kingdom without the king. Our own secular culture says there is a savior and that savior is you. You know, it's about be yourself identity. Free yourself liberty. Find yourself fulfillment. And those words are great. Liberty and fulfillment and the pursuit of happiness. It almost sounds like something from America, doesn't it? You know, that, you know we've inalienable rights to pursue happiness and freedom and they're good things. But what happens at street level They become self-realization, self-expression, self-gratification. And that's the culture we're in. So we've got this gospel of self that that, that fills the culture. We've got this gospel of self where where sin, what ruins the world, is not rejection of God, but rejection of self. Any, Any external authority that seeks to define us, that's sinful, that's destructive. Any binding commitment that restricts us, we think, no. Anything that doesn't make me feel pleasure in the moment, anything I find difficult, like your opinion, or going to work, anything you don't want to do, that's sin in our culture. And we lead in this culture, and we swim in this culture, and we find, why is it that people don't want to commit? Why do people want to be involved? Because that is sin, to binding commitments and responsibilities, and anything that's difficult, we say, I don't want to do that. What is salvation in our culture? 
Salvation is therefore ultimate freedom, release from external authorities and binding commitments and anything you find difficult to center on yourself. It's all about me. On who you truly are and what truly makes you happy. And if you have enough freedom, you're going to arrive at this heaven, this utopia of personal fulfillment. And we can feel like, and I've just observed this kind of increasing growth in uh, expressive individualism, and I can, uh, suddenly I can see it everywhere now. I think, there it is, there it is, there it is. And we can think it's a unique moment, but actually it's right at the very beginning of the book, right at the very beginning of the Bible, this culture of self, this exile moment of self emerges into God's good world, slithers the lie that God is not to be trusted, that God's a lying dictator, he's a grasping dictator whose commands are restrictive and work against your flourishing. That's what people think God is like, that's what people think Christianity is like. You tell people about Christianity and they go, hang on a minute, this isn't good for me, this is restrictive, this is binding, this is negative, this is going to be difficult, I'm going to have to do what somebody else says, I'm going to have to believe a book that I don't have any, and, and suddenly, whoa, and, and that, that lie came right into the beginning, you will not die, you will not die, for God knows when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be as God. Defining, knowing good and evil. Humanity conspires right at the very beginning to throw off God's rule and enthrone autonomy of self at the heart of the cosmos. Dallas Willard in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, reflects this. The image of a restrictive God that limits our freedom drives us to pushing God out of his creation and putting self on the throne of the universe. This inevitably results in the ruined soul and the ruined world. So profound, we've pushed God out. We said, I'll enthrone self. And we think, well, that, that's what they've done out there. And we've, re we've said, no, God, we trust you. And it was so wonderful when we, in the worship this morning. I just couldn't help but pray. But, you know, God's talking about God's, God's no rival. He's got no equal. He's upon the throne. And it's such a wonderful truth. But when you're outside in the culture, we're discipled and swim in this water of self, this enthroning of self. Bill Hull, Bull, Bill Hull. In his book, The Disciple-Making Pastor Pulls No Punches. You think a guy called Hull is going to pull no punches. I don't think he's from Yorkshire. I think he's from the States. But he says this. The Western evangelical church is weak, self-indulgent, superficial. It's been thoroughly discipled by its culture. Regardless of our not nodding assent to the importance of Christian maturity, our passions lay elsewhere. We've sacrificed the poured out life of a disciple on the altar of shallow personal achievements and self-gratification. We're exiled in this culture of self. But Jesus calls us to walk another way. Jesus calls us to walk another way. I love this passage in Philippians, this hymn from the early church, Jesus did not consider equality with 
God something to be used for his own advantage or grasped or as Donnie said it's not about God didn't use his godness Jesus didn't use his godness to for his own advantage but made himself nothing taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men he humbled himself became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross that's what it's like to be God that's that's what it's like to be God shaped that's what it's like to have God enthroned on on the throne of your life and and when when Jesus says to his disciples that's the way I'm going to walk I'm going to walk the way of the cross he says to Peter Peter says you're the Christ the son of the living God he has this incredible mind he says I'm going to go to the cross and Peter says no no way and Peter gets rebuked get behind me He says, you are not thinking, your mind, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man, the things of self. That's not what self does, Jesus. That's not the way. There must be another way. That's not the way. Then Jesus told his disciples, familiar verses, if anyone would come after me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, will lose it. I want to find my identity, you're going to lose it. I want to find my fulfillment, you're going to lose it. I'm going to gratify myself, you're going to feel empty. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote that I'm sure you've heard before, but it hits hard to the moment. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering all must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. That's not go and live in a bunker and get food and wait for Jesus' return. It's abandon the attachments, abandon the idolatry, abandon the seductive pleasures and self-gratification and meanness of this world. It is dying of the, it is that dying of the old self which is a result of encounter with Jesus. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion, our union with Christ. When Christ calls a man, a woman, he bids them come and die. Self-denial means knowing only Christ and forgetting oneself, he goes ahead of us. Hold fast to him. I want to quickly then, well, I'm probably lying saying quickly. <laughs> I want to, as quickly as I can, take you through four ways that you can die to self in this culture. And they're actually really easy, not obvious. There's nothing profound about them. The first one is, in an individualistic and atomized world, for meaningful community. Mark says again, uh, he says, a mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice has disappeared amongst Western believers. In its place is a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. This new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and an insatiable consumerism. So what does that do, that sporadic engagement, that passivity, that commitment phobia, uh, that insatiable uh, consumerism, is it erodes community. 
It erodes community. People in our society want community. But they want community as a commodity. They want community to be there when they need it. They want to have access to community when they want it, but they, but they, don't, want to, they don't want to give anything. They don't want to lose their personal autonomy. They don't want to give their freedom. They don't want to say that I'm going to sacrifice my time and my decisions for community. Let me give you an example. Naomi and I, uh, with our kids, go on holiday with another family. Now, it's getting kind of tense at this point. We've had good holidays, but getting kind of tense because it's basically 10 adults, 10 selves, 10 people who've got autonomy. So when the discussion goes, uh, we're still camping. It's my wife's fault. I don't know why we camp. Can we not go in a hotel just once? <laughs> Do I have to eat my food in the dirt again? <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we have this discussion about what we want to do. And the family from London say, let's go around the towns. There's two girls in there and a guy. Let's go around the town and let's shop and look at, let, let's go to cafes. And my boy's are like, can we go on the beach and play rugby? And it's like, and, and actually, this year, the, the, the girls won again. And so my two boys, one of them's here. I'm not mentioning his name. One of them here is like sitting at the camp table like, miserable. You know, he's on, he's on the iPad watching the cricket at home. You know, why are we paying thousands of pounds for him just to say, I'm going to watch the cricket? But actually, and we're driving in the car, and I'm saying, you know, to be in community, you have to sacrifice autonomy. You've got to say, okay, some of my desires and some of my wishes and some of my wants and some of my time requirements are going to go die because I want to be in community. What happens is that we, we, people don't want to do it. We've all had that text, haven't we? Sorry, I can't make it tonight. Hands up if you've ever sent that text to your small group leader. I want to rebuke you now. In Jesus' name. You know, you've, you've sweated, haven't you? You've sweated over and you think, right, I've prepared this Bible study. We've cooked all this food. And then, doo -doo. sorry, I can't make it tonight. It's like, Argh. Lord, I'm sure there's a gracious reason why they can't make it, but I don't know what it is. Don't do that. I can't make it tonight. And you know what they're doing? They can't make it tonight because they're on, they're on, when you put someone on Facebook, they're all like it. And you think, I thought you couldn't make it tonight, but you're still on Facebook. You know, they can't make it at church. And then you see on social media, they're, they're doing their lawn. <laughs> so I had one guy, he can't make it, and I think, and he says, I've done a great, he's, he's done his garden up in Cheltenham, I think, what? He wants community there to be there when he wants it, he wants to come on Sunday when he wants to come, but when he doesn't come, he's going to do a gun, but he better be there when he wants it. Well, the challenge faced by the church, church in the West is not simply the rise of unbelief, but rather the rise within church of a belief in choice that's detached from belonging. Choice without belonging has created an epidemic of loneliness, as Andrew was saying yesterday. US data said adults are twice as likely to say they're lonely as a decade ago. About one in five feel lonely. But our addiction to choice, our addiction to self, our commitment phobia has killed community. So we're separated into our self-sized bubble, drowning in cho choice freedom, but thirsting for community. 
Being in community jostles with me time, our time, downtime, sports time, weekend away time, family time. It's my birthday time. It's not my birthday time. It's my dog's birthday time. I'm having my hair done time. I've not got any hair and so I'm staying at home. <laughs> True gospel community requires commitment. Say that. We've got to, as Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer said, we've got to empty the overflowing ch- tank of choice, freedom, and pour it into others. Community is, is, is critical. In the West, community cohesion is breaking down. I tend, tend to think, well, why did my church only come one in five? I'm just looking at them there, actually. All the good people are here. I'm preaching at the choir. <laughs> why? You know, but why? why, do, why I, think it's, I thought it was me. I thought, well, that's my, I'm a bad leader. You know, whatever, and then you realize, no, it's everyone. We had the mayor up, Christopher Uppel, who's an associate pastor. He said, let's get the mayor up. We're doing this cult, uh, thing on culture. And, 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 and he said, the institutions of community cohesion can't get anyone to volunteer. You know, food banks can't get people to volunteer. People, you know, the church is filling the gaps because people don't want to commit. They want their freedom and their time, but they don't want to commit. And community cohesion, the things that keep Western society strong, that are often missing in, in, in less developed countries, are being eroded. People are bowling alone. Advanced churches, we need to form intentional, meaning communities. That's why we do churches in, in family together. Because churches shouldn't be identified on their own, and leaders shouldn't be on their own, and people shouldn't be on their own. We, we need to be in it together. It's not that I belong to God and make a decision to go to a local church. Being united with Jesus means I am in Christ. And with those who are united with him. This is my identity. This is our identity. It means being a Christian is a community reality. It doesn't happen by chance. We've got to die to self. Die to sofa time. Die to screen time. Die to it's too much effort time. We need to see dwelling in Christian community as a spiritual discipline just as important as reading your Bible. It's great that Grant and the team are saying about community Bible reading. It's very exciting in our church. More and more people are reading their Bible. You think, well, that's obvious. It's a spiritual discipline that helps you to grow. Prayer helps you to grow. But being in communities is a spiritual discipline. You have to say, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there as a matter of habit. I'm going to go there and commit. Eugene Peterson said this about uh, believing community. Flip, I need to rush. The believing community, sorry, I broke my rules. Uh, the believing community is the context for the life of faith. Love cannot exist in isolation. Away from others, love bloats into self-centered pride. Grace cannot be received privately. Cut off from others, it's perverted into entitlement and greed. Hope cannot develop and remain healthy in solitude. Separated from community, uh, over-ripens in the form of idle fantasies. No gift, no virtue can develop and remain healthy apart from the church. The only way from Christ to heaven is the church. Two, combat self-centered autonomy. The other ones are shorter. Combat self-centered autonomy. Uh, embrace deliberate, intrusive discipleship. I mean, you've all, like you're all looking at your me time, aren't you now? I'm sorry, I, I will be quick. Okay. We live in this society of self-realization where what's happened is, I think there's a little graphic that I put together when we did our series on sex. If you imagine the... Why is that funny? If you imagine, you know, 
100 years ago, external culture, church, state, family was huge, had authority into you, and the individual was small. That big circle represents authority. Now what's happened is that authority is totally internalized. In fact, it's so internalized that your biology might say something, but inside you, who you really are, where the real authority lies, tells you what's really true. But as Jesus followers, we've got to die to self. And it's really countercultural because God is the servant and master of our personal will. The Bible is a creedal authority and it's been displaced by, how do I feel? Does this feel right to me? Even prophetically, I wonder if the Lord is saying that I should love my wife. I think the Bible's creedal authority here, yes. To be a disciple of Jesus means we need to have character conversations. We need to receive challenge from outside your personal autonomy bubble. How do you react when somebody in your community challenges you? If you're a parent and they challenge you about your parenting, don't go there. If you're spending your money in a way and then somebody challenges you about that, don't you dare go there. How do you react when we do discipleship together? Do you find yourself pushing back? Do you find yourself, don't say that to me? It's such a challenge. Don't say that. I think I've got a little image. Is it a little image? Don't you tell me what to do. Discipleship includes someone telling you what to do. We think that discipleship means someone tells you you're great. Let's get together in a three and we'll all just say how great we are. (laughs) Matt, me and Pete used to get together in a three and they used to tell me how great I was. I loved it. Actually, what you need is we need a challenge about, I won't say what we challenged each other on, but, you know, money and marriage and how you're doing. And you need challenge. You need somebody to say, whoa, how you doing? And that means you've got to let your autonomy bubble come down and you've got to let community and the Word of God speak. I've used this quote before, but it's a killer. Paul Tripp says this, I've come to understand that I need others in my life. I know I need now to commit myself to living intentional, intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Living in intentional, intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I know now, he says, my job is to seek this community out. To invite people to interrupt my private conversations and say things to me that I, I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. I've, re- I've realized now how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, grace and love. All those one and others in the Bible, as, as Andrew said yesterday, they worked out in discipleship community. I see myself connected to others, not by my own choice, but by the wise design of the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. To curb self-centered autonomy, you need to embrace intrusive discipleship. Number three, to curb entitlement 
and self-centered tendencies take leadership responsibility. Now you might think, hang on a minute, that is an oxymoron. I, I thought leadership was all about self-entitlement. I thought leadership kind of got me a, a ticket into the inside, got me a ticket into a place where I could do what I want, where my autonomy could dominate. It's certainly not about responsibility or anything difficult or challenging. No, it's not about that. I was born 15 years after the end of the World War II, so you can work out how old I am. And interesting, it was still fresh in, in my parents' mind. And people understood the importance of self-denial and sacrifice. And on Poppy Day, we still remember that. Because it touched family after family in the West. Obviously, in the 1960s, people weren't sacrificial all the time. But the prevailing ethic, what was out there, was self-sacrifice or self-denial. You couldn't stand up as a politician and, and say, it's all about me. You had to say, I'm here to serve. You know, we serve at the will of the president. We're here to serve. We serve the people. But 60 years of peace and possessions, comfort and choice, I mean the duty to self, the duty to serve has been replaced, uh, the duty to others, sorry, and the duty to serve has been replaced by the duty to self. I look at our politics. I look at our multinationals, that go, you know, our travel companies that go bust. I look at those companies and, and think how much of that has been, that leadership has been about self. You know, I've taken this huge bonus, but yet the company's gone down. I'm doing what I want, but the company, you know, there's a sense, you know, the narcissistic nature of some leaders that I see, I think it's deeply depressing. Why don't people see it? Because actually that's the water we swim in, the, the culture of self-fulfillment. Everyone thinks that's what leadership's about. You want to be a leader so you can have what you want and do what you want and say what you want. I read this some years ago. Uh, it's in the... Well, I, I, I lie. I didn't read it in the Harvard Business Review because it's not really my reading. Somebody else read it in the Harvard Business Review and I thought, oh, I like that quote. <laughs> it's by a secular guy called Umar Haig and he says this, we need a new generation of leaders and we need it now. We're in the midst of a great dereliction, a historical failure of leadership precisely when we need it most. Leadership wannabes uh, want the benefits of leadership without the price. They want the respect, the dignity, the title of leadership. This is a non-Christian without leading people into lives that matter. They want the love that leaders earn, act by painful act, without in return having the courage, humility, and wisdom to love. Perhaps then that's why there's so little leadership around, because we're afraid to say even the word love, to let, to let alone to feel it, to weigh it, to measure it, to allow it, admit it, believe it, and so be transformed by it. That's a non-Christian saying we need that. Love is about others. It's the very nature of love to be otherly. The prophetic word that we had about take responsibility from Andy, it's about there's a moment where you, you need to say this is about me. I'm going to take responsibility. Leadership is not for four or five people. It's about you taking responsibility. It's about you saying, I'm going to do it. It's not saying, I'm going to take Christian leadership because I want, you know, and there's a little bit of, that, of this in me. You think, oh, I wouldn't, I'd love some respect and some dignity and I'd love people to think I'm amazing. You know, maybe I could become a minor Christian celebrity like Matt Hosier. 
and have a helicopter ride around, around Cape Town. When Matt posted about that, I thought, that is the leadership I want. <laughs> I want a helicopter ride around Cape Town. <laughs> and then Matt said he'd done... No, no, to be honest, and then Matt said, I said, he said, I, I did eight talks. I thought, flip, you did eight talks. You deserved a helicopter ride, buddy. <laughs> Mind you, so did the people listening, but that's another story. <laughs> Sorry, I love you. Sorry, cheap shot, cheap shot, cheap shot. But we need to know, leadership is not glamorous. It's act by painful act. It's finding courage when, when things are tough. It's humility when things go well. It's about serving when no one sees. It's about inviting people into your home, into your life. It's about having a phone call in the middle of the night because somebody's been involved in a, in a tragedy and the fire department needs somebody there who's got Christian love and faith and responsibility. Amen. Amen. It's about loving when it costs. Giving your time when time's short. It's about receiving, sorry, I can't make it tonight, texts. It costs to be a leader. I was so pleased. One of our young guys in church called Ollie, I said to him, are you going to step up, Ollie? He's just got a new baby, and his wife's just taking on our, tod taking on our toddler group. And I said, are you going to step up, Ollie? And he said, he said, I know that leadership costs, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to join the team that leads the group. That's sweet music. You know, because the way that the, the culture is, actually, I want leadership to be all about me. Donnie quoted this earlier. You know, the Last Supper... The disciples, this is the Last Supper. You know, this profound moment, the Last Supper that we celebrate week after week. The disciples are rowing at the back about entitlement and power and position. Who's going to be the greatest? They're, they're rowing at the back. Jesus says, whoa, you got it wrong. He says, the rulers of the Gentiles, that's what they're like. That's what leadership in the natural culture are like, as Donnie was saying. That's what leadership in the world is about, about self-enrichment, self-entitlement, self-autonomy. That's what leadership in the world is. He says, but no, I'm amongst you as one who serves. I've come to give my life, uh, I serve and give my life a ransom. And then Jesus does what amazingly John records, but Luke, did, I think Luke, record it for me. But actually, you go from Luke and they're fighting and Jesus saying, I'm amongst you of one who serves next. And John says, and then Jesus, after supper, took a towel, wrapped it round his waist and washed the disciples' feet. At the meal, he'd broken the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Jesus is going to show us what real leadership looks like, what it takes to take responsibility for the sin of the whole world. And he's called us, calls us to walk the same way. He calls us to say, I'm going to take leadership responsibility. I'm going to step up to what God is calling me to do. I'm going to be a gemmer who hears the word of God and a year later is running a ministry. I'm going, to be, I'm, going to, I'm going to be like Travis who says, yeah, okay, so I had some stuff and challenges in my life, but God is calling me to be a restorer of broken walls. It's not glamorous. It's the way of the cross. Let me finish with this. To overturn comfort and self-sufficiency, pray. I've lived in all sorts of economically diverse places. So I was born in Leeds, and uh, we, Naomi and I planted a church in Manchester's inner city, which is pretty poor. Now we live in, in heaven. <laughs> 
We live in a beautiful Regency town with parks and festivals and cool bars and craft beer. And we describe our, ta- our town as like a comfortable sofa. If you want to come and sit on the comfortable sofa, it's a great place to come. But actually, there's something about that comfortable sofa that I always found, find worrying. 21st century, 70 years after the World War, 90 years after the Great Depression, the myth is the Western world is happy. The industries of style and experience tell us that life in the first world bubble is good. If you live in Triorchia, Tony Pandy, you might think, man, it's tough, and, I, and I, it is. But if you live, if you're from the West here, you're rich. You live in a bubble. If you've got a British passport, you're part of that elite club that can travel the world, and you don't need a visa. You're welcome. You live in the nice bubble. And the challenge for the comfortable West is, why do we need a savior when the world doesn't seem broken? Why do we need a savior when we can brunch on vegan food and save the planet? Why, can, why do we need a savior when we can bring our coffee cups and make sure that we don't damage the environment? Why, why, you know, why, 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 can we, why do we need a savior when you can book onto a cheap flight and lie on a beach and look at the turquoise waters from your hotel? Why do we need that? I mean, I'm still dreaming of that turquoise waters at a hotel. <laughs> why do we need a savior? The Western world tells us that utopia and a little bit more freedom and a little bit more technology and the Babel Tower is going to reach the heavens and everything's going to be fine. We've been told we can have the kingdom without the king. And you know, the truth is that if you stay on your phone on the way to the airport in Cape Town, you can look at, you can look at the mountain and you can look at the ocean and say there's nothing wrong with the world. But if you happen to look out of your window... You notice the shacks. They tell you we need a savior. We hold on to the myth that the world is not broken and we don't need a savior as long as migrants don't buy, die in the back of trucks. As long as you don't notice the divorce rates blowing families apart. As long as you don't notice the mental health crisis, the growing suicide rates. As long as we turned a blind eye to the sex trafficking, the enslaving drug addiction. Best not to ask why community cohesion is breaking down. Why is politics becoming so toxic and extreme? Act surprised at the trolling and abuse on social media. Because then we won't need a saviour. But if you open your eyes and smell the good coffee, we need a saviour. We need a savior. What if God is allowing the rise of this secular project to show the emptiness of the kingdom without the king? What if God is giving them this society over like in Romans 1 to their own judgment to show the emptiness of the self-gospel? To show that what it's like when we forget the Lord. What if God is allowing the decline of much of the church, this 21st century destruction of Jerusalem, this exiles, because he wants Christians to remember the Lord and come at the end of our resources and seek his face. The alarm call is going. The alarm is ringing. Wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. That's what Isaiah says. Wake up. Woe to you, O sleep in Zion. Wake up. I'm saying it to myself. The alarm call is going off. Society is breaking down. The alarm call is going off and we're hitting snooze. 
I'm hitting snooze. My Cheltenham sofa. I thought God say this to me and I'm not proud. If I were to make the world go into deeper chaos, if I was to let economic structures undermine, if I was to let the environment run out of hand, if I was to let war and famine and depression come, and people sought the Lord, would you be happy to let that happen, Howard? My answer was no. I'm happy here. I don't really live like I'm an exile. I don't really live like this is broken Babylon. I just don't want the world to go mess. But maybe the Lord is saying, I'm just going to bring this whole thing to chaos. So people say, it's time to remember the Lord. It's time to remember the Lord. What if God offered the church in the West the way of the fiery furnace? Or the lion's den? Or the cross? Would we walk there if our actions caused the nation to remember the Lord? Daniel says, Daniel 9, I, Daniel, finishing here, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. Restore again. Jerusalem to your people. He repents and prays. And I think I'm so comfortable that I find it hard to pray. I've almost thought revival is what kind of Pentecostals get excited about. But actually, it's time. It's time to pray. R.T. Kendall, after the court case that I mentioned earlier, tweeted this. A British court in a transgender case ruled that belief in the Bible is incompatible with human dignity. dignity. That is how far England has gone. And it demonstrates that all Britain needs a great awakening. Come, Lord Jesus. But Sam Band, why don't you come back? We need to cry to the Lord. The time's going, but but we need to cry to the Lord. We need to say, I'm going to be in in community. I'm going to be intentionally discipled. I'm going to take leadership that's about the way of the cross and the towel and the way of service. I'm going to take that leadership and I'm going to pray, God, would you turn the nation back to you? Would you turn the nation back to you? We need to die to self and pray. We need to die to self and lead. We need to die to self and be disciples. We need to die to self and build community that pours itself out.